All right, Liberty, before we get into the word, a couple announcements. Uh, one, our uh, youth are on their way back from the Rally Conference as we speak. Sounds like it was an awesome weekend, so just be praying that they get back safely and then they kind of ingrain and practice the different things they learned and their faith is strengthened. Two, we had um, a great work day yesterday. Uh, we had some people out at the Bensons doing some things. We had some people here. And then um, last week we were uh, finishing up at Lorene's deck and getting it stained. So um, depending on where you're at, it might have seemed like a little bit smaller of a work day, but that's because we had the forces split. So thank you all for coming out and helping. We got a ton, a ton, a ton accomplished. Then lastly, uh, right after church is our Operation Christmas Child um, Packing Day. So we will be in the basement, and our goal is to uh, pack 250 boxes. So the tables are set up, everything's kind of organized, and it's a pretty streamlined process that we have. Um, we will eat some pizza afterwards, and then we will get started with packing those boxes. We'd love for everyone to join us, even if you can only join us for a little bit. So many hands make a light work. With that... Let's get into the word. We're in the book of Colossians. And we'll let the kids head to class as we're turning to Colossians. Colossians chapter 1, starting in verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel, which has come to you as an indeed in the whole world, it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you, since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the good work you're doing among us, we pray, God, that you would bless our time after the service today as we're packing boxes to bless uh, youth around the world, that you would use those little boxes um, to bring the message of the gospel, the message of hope, <clears throat> hope to them, that many of them would come to know you, Lord. Lord, bless our kids as they're getting ready uh, for the children's play coming up um, not too far away, God, and that the different grandparents and friends that are going to be coming uh, would hear the gospel afterwards and respond in faith, Lord. Bless them as they're preparing for that. Thank you for the workers and everything they're doing. God, we want to be a people that are busy about your word and busy about living your word. So I pray you continue to fill us with your spirit, continue to have us um, walk in the spirit <clears throat> that you have given us. He is an earnest deposit, so to speak, as Ephesians talks about, Lord. And one day you're coming back, to redeem us, Lord, as your own in your full glory, God, and we will see you as you truly are. We look forward to that day, Lord. We truly look forward to that day. Bless us now as we continue in your word, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so last week we talked about the marks <clears throat> of a true church, and we looked at um, primarily the first mark, which was uh, the true preaching of the word. And historically, there's been three marks that have been seen as the marks of a true church. When you talk about, hey, what makes up a true church? And the true preaching of the Word of God was the one we looked at last week. And then we mentioned two others, which we'll look at this week. Uh, the sacraments, rightly administered, would be the second mark. And then the practice of church discipline would be the third mark. Now, the practice of church discipline... Some um, theologians would place that either under the sacraments or even really under the true preaching of the word. But those are the three marks that 
for hundreds of years of church history, theologians have recognized as the marks of a true church. And I just want us to notice here <clears throat> in Colossians, like this whole section really focuses on Jesus and the Word. So if you look back in verse 3, notice how it starts out, we always thank God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Well, Jesus has already been mentioned at that point as Paul gets into the body of his letter. He's already been mentioned twice in the first two verses. Starting out in verse 1, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, right? And then to the saints in verse 2, and faithful brothers in Christ. So, I mean, all these eight verses, we're seeing in Christ, we're seeing the Father, and then we see an emphasis on the Word. So it goes on uh, in verse 6, or excuse me, verse 5 at the end, of this you have heard before in the Word of the truth, the Gospel, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit. What's bearing fruit? Well, the gospel is bearing fruit. Brothers and sisters, if we are faithful to preaching the word, if we are faithful to preaching the gospel, guess what? It bears fruit. It bears fruit. Okay? It bear, bore fruit back in the Colossian church. It bears fruit today. Amen? So <clears throat> it goes on, um, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing that's why we talked last week about the true preaching of the word, right? Because we want it increasing in us, right? Right? Okay. So we want it increasing in us. It's bearing fruit and it's increasing as it also does among you. So he's like saying, hey, it increases throughout the whole world, but guess what? It's also doing it in you, right? So if it's, if it's think about that for a moment though. If it's doing it in them, who are already believers, well then that's, a, that's something that the Word should be doing in us. What should it be doing? It should be increasing. It should be bearing fruit in our own lives. All right, Bearing fruit and increasing. As it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God and truth. Right? So this whole section, we see a focus on the Father, we see a focus on the Son. Jesus is, is Paul's starting to bring out the supremacy of Christ, which he's going to lead into in a, in a few more verses, and then we're also seeing an emphasis on the Word. One of the keys, one of the marks of a true church is the true preaching of the Word. Now, Legionnaire Ministries, which was R.C. Sproul's um, ministry, and Lifeway Research, <clears throat> kind of part of the Southern Baptists, they do a survey every two years, and they ask, um, they ask uh, believers, and then they ask unbelievers a host of different questions. Now, in, in order to qualify as a believer, you had to uh, say yes to these different statements. The Bible is the highest authority for what I believe. It is very important for me personally to encourage non-Christians to trust Jesus Christ as their Savior. Jesus Christ's death on the cross is the only sacrifice that could remove the penalty of my sin, and only those who trust in Christ Jesus alone as their Savior receive God's free gift of eternal salvation. Now, if you can answer yes to those four, then when you were taking this survey, then they would consider you an evangelical or a believer for the, for the sake of the, of the survey. <clears throat> and so here's what those people said <clears throat> regarding some um, different practices that the Bible teaches. One was um, sex outside, this was just a statement, yes or no, sex outside of traditional marriage is a sin. 94% said yes, it's a sin. Abortion is a sin. 91% said yes. The Bible is 100% accurate in all that it teaches. 95% said yes. I mean, that's pretty good, you know, you're in the 90s. Hell is a real place where certain people will be punished forever. 94% said yes. <clears throat> now, what we're going to see here in a moment is the numbers start to go down. Jesus is the first and greatest being created by God. How many you think said yes? 73. Those are the people that answered to those four statements that I read about the Bible being the highest authority and we need to Tell people to trust in Jesus, and Jesus' death is the only thing that removes the sacrifice for sin, and only those who trust in Christ receive salvation, and they think Jesus is created. Like, just real quick, let's just look at John 1 so we can, you know, clear that up for any of y'all that might be confused.
John 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. I mean, you could do a full stop right there, right? He was in the beginning with God. Then notice what it says in verse 3. All things were made through Him. Who's the through Him? Jesus, right? The Word. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. Okay, so you have the category of made things, and you have a category of, of not made things, really. I mean, there's only two, and all the made things are by Jesus. Well, guess what? <clears throat> he made it all. He made it all. And if, if we're going to say that <clears throat> um, he somehow created, then, I mean, we end up in kind of some logical contradictions because we're saying God created himself. Right? I mean, if this is true here, which it is, in the beginning was the Word, the Word is with God, and the Word was God, well, how can God create himself? Okay, so he's not a created being. 73% though said yes. Okay, Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit is a force, not a person. What percent do you think? It goes down a little bit, actually. 60%. 60% said yes. The Holy Spirit is a force, not a person. All right, Acts 5, just real quick, Acts 5. Now, the Scripture is abundantly clear that Jesus was not created, okay? I'm, we just looked at, like, one little passage right there. The Scripture is abundantly clear that the Holy Spirit... Um, is not a force, that he's actually a person. We're just going to look at one verse, all right? Acts 5, you there? This is the story of Ananias and Sapphira. Look what it says. A man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property, and with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias... Why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? Right? So this is, I mean, this is Peter's, part of Peter's response to Ananias. He's, he's calling him out on it. But notice something. <clears throat> what does he say? Why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? Here, here's the question. How do you lie to a force? You can't. You can lie to people. You can lie to yourself. You're a person, but you can't lie to a force, okay? All right, going on. The next statement was, Jesus was a great teacher, but not God. How, how many think said yes? Jesus was a great teacher, but not God. 43 percent. I mean, they answered all those questions earlier. The Bible's the authoritative word of God. You're only saved through Jesus' death. No, but he's not God. <clears throat> God learns and adapts to different circumstances. How many think said yes? 48%. The Holy Spirit can tell me to do something which is forbidden in the Bible. How many things said yes? 27%. Here's the thing. Notice the first set of questions that I was going through. That really deals with actually like what we would call orthopraxy. All right? Um, right practice. Um, the latter questions more deal with orthodoxy. Right teaching. Okay? So if you're orthodox, you have... Think of, um, you know, kids or maybe even yourself, orthodontist. What's he doing? Straight teeth. Right teeth, okay? Orthodox, doctrine is where that word comes from. Right or straight teaching, right? Not crooked teaching, but straight teaching. Orthopraxy from praxis. We get the word practice. Um, straight practice. Straight living, essentially. So when it comes to different things of practice, they kind of know, oh, yes, abortion's wrong, and murder's wrong, and sex outside of marriage is wrong, but when it comes to the actual, like, theology, as we'd probably call it, there's confusion, 
which is sad because <clears throat> people aren't being taught biblical theology. They might be hearing sermons on all sorts of, of sins. That's great. They need, we need those sermons. But they're not being taught theology. So when people are like, doctrine doesn't matter, doctrine doesn't, well, it does matter. Okay? Because some of those statements earlier about the, the practice, well, why is it true for some of those things? It actually gets into the right thinking of, of who God is and who we are. So there's much work to be done um, in the church. And someday, I'm just giving you a little warning right now, someday we're going to do, um, not a survey, but we're going to do a little quiz sometime from the pulpit to see how good your Bible knowledge is, all right? So be prepared. Okay, so the, the, the true preaching of the Word is the first mark. The second mark is the sacraments rightly administered. How many sacraments are there? Y'all don't know how many sacraments there are? Okay, two. Did you think it was a trick question or something? You thought the quiz started, okay? And you didn't want to give away the answer to anybody. <laughs> okay, there's two sacraments. Here's what we see. When it comes to the sacraments, they are instituted by Jesus. Because sometimes we're like, oh, well, why do we practice these? Why are these the sacraments? Well, they're instituted by Jesus, and he lets us know that they have lasting endurance. They're just not like something that he did with his disciples. No, they're for all people that call themselves believers for all time. We've, uh, we've read it before. We'll read it again, and we're going to read it today, Matthew 28. So here we are, Matthew 28. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Okay, so here Jesus is talking to the disciples, right? And if you think about the different spheres of government, you know, we have the church government, you could call it the ecclesiastical government, we have the civil government, and then we have the family government. Well, how is he talking to the disciples? Is he talking to them as representatives of... The civil government? No. Is he talking to them as representatives of the family? No. He's really talking to them as representatives of the church. Why? They're the believers, right? The, they're the believers. They believe they are the church. So here Jesus institutes it, and he's commanding, specifically here the apostles, but by way of extension us, he's commanding them to what? Go and make the disciples part of that. What do you do once you make the disciples? You baptize them, right? Notice, notice the order, right? You make them, then you baptize them. You make them, and then you baptize them. So Jesus institutes the baptism. He also institutes the Lord's Supper. Look at Luke chapter 22. Verse 14, Luke 22. And when the hour came, he reclined at the table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer, for I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Right? There's the command. Do this in remembrance of me. He goes on, likewise the cup after they had eaten, saying, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. So he's instituting here, and then in some of the other Gospels as well, the Lord's Supper. Do this in remembrance of me. Uh, the idea of lasting and ongoing practice. So we see that Jesus institutes both sacraments, and then once we get um, you know, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, once we get into Acts, what do we see in Acts? We, we see that it is, I would say, celebrated in the early church. You could say it's carried out in the early church, which is true. You could even say it's practiced in the early church, which is also accurate. But we see it celebrated in the early church. Look at Acts chapter 2, verse 41. So those who received his word were baptized. And there were added that day about 3,000 souls. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. Okay? So they get saved, and then what happens? Baptism, right? 
And then what happens once they're incorporated into the church? They're added that day about 3,000 souls. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread. All right? That's the, the communion there, the Lord's Supper. Then, while it's celebrated in the early church, it's explained in the epistles. Now, we're not going to look at it just for the sake of time, but we, we see Paul in different epistles explain different aspects of di- baptism. We see him explain different aspects of the Lord's Supper. So, the sacraments rightly administered. That's the second mark. Here's the thing. The sacraments must always be understood in conjunction with the Word of God. They bear no meaning apart from what is revealed in the Word. If you deny certain fundamentals of the Scriptures, what happens with the sacraments is they usually become denigrated and twisted to mean something else. Okay. The sacraments also serve as a, a membership control of sort because think about it. Baptism, that's the visible entrance into the visible church. It's rightly administered by the church. And the Lord's Supper is the continuance in the visible church, rightly administered by the church. So the ordinances were given to the church to oversee and provide over. There's a big difference between an organization having Bible studies or doing outreach or running a missions program, Campus Crusade, Praying Pelican Missions, all those different organizations out there there's a difference between them and a church now if an organization like any of those mentioned started to practice baptism or the lord's supper they'd really be starting to uh, attempt to function as a church now we don't consider a weekly bible study at someone's home to be a church it might be part of the church gathering But if that Bible study started baptizing people or taking the Lord's Supper, like we'd start to think, okay, something's going on here. So the sacraments serve as a membership control. And Scripture repeatedly shows the importance of the sacraments to the church by linking it with the preaching of the Word. Think back to Matthew 28. Go, therefore make disciples, right? So you're going, what are you making the disciples with the gospel? Just like Colossians is talking about, it's growing and increasing, right? In us, and then by way of extension, as we're preaching the gospel, it's increasing and bearing fruit in other people. So it's linked there. Even in Acts 2, I mean, people are getting saved, and what are they doing? They're devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching. And in that context, what are they doing? Well, there's baptism for the people getting saved, and then they're also fellowshipping with one another, and then they're participating in the Lord's Supper. So you always see this link with the preaching of the Word. Think about the commonalities when, when we talk about baptism. What are some of the <clears throat> essentials? Well, you got to have water, right? And then you need to have um, the Trinitarian formula. I mean, Jesus says it right there. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. It's pretty straightforward. Yet, there are oddities that we see in certain uh, denominations or certain so-called churches where they don't baptize in the name of the Father and Son and the Holy Spirit. You also see oddities like in, um, with the Mormons where they get baptized for other people. Go figure that out. We have to follow the practice that Jesus gave us, not the practice that we just want to do on our own. Right? If Jesus tells us to do it and he shows us how to do it, that's the practice that we followed. He, and he has told us to do it and he has shown us how to practice it. Now sometimes we end up with aberrations. That's why anytime we start to take the sacraments and separate them from the word or divorce them from the word, we end up with a twisting of those sacraments and people use them to say and imply different things. Some people say that you have to be baptized to be saved. Listen, adding anything to salvation makes it works-based. Okay, If you have to do anything more than trust in Christ, then you are turning it into a works-based salvation. Think about it. 
there's some denominations <clears throat> that you actually have to get baptized in their church or their denomination. Otherwise, it's not a legitimate baptism. And so they don't recognize any baptism outside of their own denomination. There's even actual churches that it's, unless it's in that specific church, it's not recognized as a legitimate baptism. Here's the question with baptism. Do you do it to get saved? Or do you do it after you're saved? And it's after. Think about it for just a moment. <clears throat> if you do it to get saved, then you're actually saying that unbelievers should be baptized. Right? Because if baptism saves, that means if you're, you're going down into the waters <clears throat> and you haven't been baptized yet, and baptism is what saves you, then you're not saved at that point where you're just stepping into the water, which means you're an unbeliever, which means that particular church is baptizing unbelievers. That doesn't make sense. Not only that, if that's true, though, if, like, the baptism saves and, you're, and unbelievers are going into the water and, and then, boom, and then they're saved, like, let's start baptizing unbelievers. Let's head to the hospitals, right? And bring a little, you know, a little horse trough or something, watering trough. We'll just start taking people out and putting them in there. No. Uh, we don't do it to get saved. We do it because we are saved. It's a public proclamation to the church, to the world, of what Christ has done in us already. The Lord's Supper, too. There's aberrations with it. Now, Luther, you mentioned Luther, and most people will be like, oh yeah, you know, 1517 and the uh, Protestant Reformation and, and Luther. That's true. There was other key people involved that sadly don't get mentioned as much or people just don't know as much about. One of them being Zwingli, Ulrich Zwingli, was, which is, he was part of what I guess is now modern uh, Switzerland. Unfortunately, um, he ended up dying somewhat early in his life. But he was really the father of the Reformed tradition across Switzerland, southern Germany, France to the Huguenots, Holland, England, Scotland. I mean, it kind of goes on and on. He was a pretty key guy. He just doesn't get mentioned uh, much. The guy who gets mentioned after Luther, who do you think, when it comes to the Reformation, gets mentioned the most after Luther? Calvin, right? John Calvin. Well, really, when, <clears throat> when you kind of do your history even though they were kind of on opposite sides of, of, of modern-day Switzerland, I mean, Zwingli was really the front-runner because he was operating in that, that same area, just on the other side of the country, and he was really what you could call first-generation, where Calvin was really second-generation. And Zwingli's successor, after he passes, and the guy who kind of takes the torch from him, was Bollinger, Henry Bollinger, or Heinrich Bollinger, if you want. Uh, he played a key role, too. He's got, um, it's, at most, most times it's published like a two-volume set. Um, great theology. Some of these guys who were foundational to the Protestant Reformation, they don't, they don't get too many shout-outs. So, hey, at least they're getting a shout-out today, right? Uh, but Luther and Zwingli <clears throat> had a sharp disagreement on the Lord's Supper. And Luther was willing to uh, move away from what the Roman Catholic Church was teaching in terms of transubstantiation, but he was really teaching what we would call a consubstantiation. The presence of Christ, uh, the term would be, it was in, with, and under the bread. And Zwingli was against that. So Luther, if you want to think about it, on some of these things, even with baptism, he kind of wanted to prune the tree. Right? And Zwingli... He just wanted to pull the tree out by its roots. And a number of theologians say if they could have actually kind of united and either looked past the baptism and especially the Lord's Supper or maybe came to some sort of agreement, they believe that the, the initial impact of the Reformation could have spread much further because it kind of put them at odds with each other uh, a little bit. Um, <clears throat> commonalities when we talk about the Lord's Supper. Well, there's bread and wine. <clears throat> Every church uses bread and wine, or grape juice. Um, why do we use it? <clears throat> this was Jesus' practice. This was the early church's practice. Uh, when they have the Lord's Supper, bread and wine is mentioned. And part of this, when we're talking about the Lord's Supper, when we're talking about baptism, 
to me, and much less so in my earlier years, probably in part because of the immaturity of faith I had, it's really important for us to realize that like, we're a part of the historic tradition that has been going on for thousands of years. We're not just like one-offs in this corner in O'Fallon, Missouri. No, we're part of something that God has been doing well longer than thousands of years, but at least back to uh, the death and resurrection of Christ, okay? Um, <clears throat> we're a part of, of the Christian church that Jesus started and is still going on. So we want to show our place in that tradition, if you will, by what? By kind of going along with some of the practices that the churches have done. Now, if there's not legitimate uh, reasons for doing it from the scriptures, yeah, cut it out. We're not there. But some of these things, like baptism in the Lord's Supper, we want to do those and participate. Um, and by doing so, it shows that we're part of the historic tradition of the faith. Like, think about baptism for a moment. When was it celebrated in the early, early church? It was celebrated when the church was gathered together, right? It was not celebrated when the youth were off at camp and a couple of them got saved and they got baptized in the creek at camp. And I think that's important, actually. Why? Because I think it's important for the entire church to be able to celebrate and participate, so to speak, in the baptism. I mean, <clears throat> you know, sometimes that happens, and I guess I am knocking it a little bit, um, but, like, the, the parents of the kids that got saved don't get to see that baptism, right? Right? And little old, old you know, Grandma Gertrude, who gave $400 to help scholarship a couple kids to go to camp, I mean, she doesn't get to, to see that. She gets to hear about it, and she's still excited. Uh, but the baptism belongs to the church, not to the youth group, to the church. So that's why, you know, and, and, and don't get me wrong, you know, some churches, you know, we're blessed to have a, a, a nice baptismal. Some churches don't have that, and then they have to, like, rent out a YMCA or whatever. That's great, you know. But what are they doing? They're doing some type of service as the church gathered together at the YMCA. We actually have uh, have had a couple of churches over the years um, asked to borrow our church, like on a Sunday afternoon, to, to do a service because we have a baptismal. But what's, what, who's coming together? It's the church. So it's a practice. The, the sacrament has been given to the church to practice in the church, overseen by the church. Same thing with the Lord's Supper. Um, it's not Doritos and Kool-Aid. And some, I've heard of people doing that. No, it's bread and wine. It's bread and wine, all right? <clears throat> we don't get any idea that we can just start, you know, subbing out, you know, whatever elements we want. No, bread and wine. So there's aberrations um, in the practice uh, with, with the Lord's Supper. Um, you know, eat this and be saved. Right? You've got you to eat this for, for uh, salvation to continue on. There's aberrations there. Now, we're not going to look at any of the aberrations for baptism or the Lord's Supper. I'm really just more mentioning them. But think about when we're talking about this idea of the Lord's Supper, I mean, we call it the Lord's Supper. You know, we can call it communion. But the idea is, is it's the Lord's meal, right? Right? And we're coming to dine with him. But there's really a background to, to this idea in the Old Testament. Um, let's just look at it briefly. Exodus 24. Exodus 24, verse 9. Then Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel went up. How many people are there? 74. Good job. And they saw the God of Israel. There was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone like the very heaven for clearness. And he did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. They beheld God and ate and drank. 
So these 74 men got to eat in the presence of God. And even if you think back uh, with Abraham, right? The visitors are approaching. And what is he? I mean, he's rushing around, right? And and he's preparing them a meal. This idea of dining with the Lord. But but even more so, think about it for a moment. Like just 74 of, of millions of Israelites, just 74 got to dine with God in his presence. But what we have is far better. The Old Testament meal, I mean, it, it is a kind of a reminder to the sins not yet atoned for. Even with the sacrifices, which we'll look at a passage in a second, I mean, they're bringing a sacrifice. Sometimes they get to partake in the sacrifice, but it points to the fact that, oh, I'm bringing a sacrifice, right? So it, it points to the sins not yet atoned for. Our meal, our Lord's Supper, points to Jesus being the atoning sacrifice. It's the reminder of the sacrifice, the bread symbolizing the body, the wine symbolizing the blood, right? And some churches, you know, <clears throat> well, you know, they'll take the bread and they'll like kind of like, you know, you know, tear it in half or whatever. But but there's a symbolism there even of his body being broken for us, right? Um, sometimes they'll pour they'll literally pour out the wine and from a, from one type of pitcher into the chalice. Again, his blood poured out. There's symbolism that they're wanting to emphasize there. What are these glimpses of? Well, one, it's, it's kind of a glimpse back to the garden. A glimpse back to the garden because Adam and Eve are there, right? And there's God in the cool of the day walking with them. And now, it doesn't specifically say eating with them, but we get this idea of fellowship. And if you, when, we, when we start to think about fellowship, you know, um, it's, it's usually... Uh, some element of food at some point involved. So it's very possible that they dined. I would say they did. So we get a glimpse back to the way it was originally, but we also get a glimpse to the way it will one day be. Like when we're, you know, uh, having the Lord's Supper each month, it's <clears throat> what, part of what's being signified there is one day we're going to be sitting at the Lord's banquet table in the new heavens and new earth and we'll be dining with him face to face so there's a glimpse back to what god originally set up and then there's a glimpse to the future you know as revelation talks about the wedding feast of the lamb are you going to be at that feast you know some people you know love weddings and some people don't love weddings but that's one wedding you want to be at all right and i heard the food is amazing there okay so make your reservations. <clears throat> make sure you're counted as one of the guests. The last mark, so you got the true preaching of the word, the sacraments rightly administered, and you have the practice of church discipline. Here's the thing. If you don't protect the purity of the church, both in its teaching and its conduct, you no longer have the church. So the word of God makes it clear the importance and necessity of church discipline. Um, We're not going to look at um, many of the passages, but let me just answer this question. Why church discipline? Why was this a mark that that theologians for hundreds of years thought was key in talking about the marks of a church? Well, think about it for a moment. Baptism lets us know who is in. The Lord's Supper lets us know who's in and who's staying in, right? Right? Well, what does church discipline let us know? Let's us know who's out, right? And we need to keep the purity of the church. So think about this for a moment. When we're talking about, you know, back in Colossians even, I mean, they're, they're getting the word. It's increasing. It's abounding. It's bearing fruit. So they're receiving the word. But we receive the word. Um, if we receive the word, we can't let sin go unchecked. I mean, to receive the word means you're going to follow it, Right? Even in the Acts passage, those who received the word, it's not like that those are the ones that are baptized, right? It's not like they just, oh, they heard it. There's a difference when the scripture talks about hearing it and receiving it. So they received the word, and then there's actions that follow. 
So when we talk about receiving the word, we receive the word. But, so that, that means we can't let sin go unchecked in the church. We receive the word. Well, that means we're going to care to make sure we live it out. And we receive the word. That, that means we're not going to do as we please. Okay? We're going to try to walk according to what, to what the scriptures say we're supposed to do. And we are to be a holy community. Back to Colossians. How does he start out calling them? The faithful saints. Faithful saints, the holy ones. A community that is becoming more and more and more like Christ. Calvin called it, when he talks about church discipline, he called it the sinew of the church. And one, uh, and Tertullian said, they are true churches which hold to what they received from the apostles. Church discipline is not a popular thing to see practiced in most churches today. Um, Most people, if you start talking about it and actually start practicing it, that's considered not loving. No, to tell people they're in danger, that their soul is in danger, that's a very loving thing to do. To tell people, guess what? It looks like you actually might not be walking with Jesus. You actually might not be a believer. That's a loving thing to do. Look, If, if I thought, if, if, you, if, if people thought that, that I wasn't saved, I'd want them telling me that. Would you want people telling you that? Like, seriously. Well, I mean, because that's a pretty crucial and critical um, thing there. If, if, if you're not saved, you're going to hell. If you are saved, you're going to be reunited with your Father in heaven. That, I mean, it, it, that is the thing. So to go to someone and be like, hey, friend, like, your actions are pretty clear that you're not walking with Jesus and it looks like you don't claim him anymore to be your own. That's very loving. It's a very loving thing to do. It, you're not going in some, some type of, of condemning way or out of anger. You shouldn't. No, you're going out of a concern. If you pull someone aside, because really when you talk about church discipline, hopefully... Um, you know, church discipline really starts just one-on-one, right? If you see someone having an issue or something, you, you pull them aside and you talk to them. Hopefully you love people enough to do that. I mean, parents, you got children. Like, you love them enough to correct them, right? What do we say about parents when their kids just do whatever and the parent, there's no discipline? I mean, we'd say that it looks like the parents really don't love their kids. Now, they, they might, but those actions sure aren't re- revealing it. And, and parents know, man, it is, it's hard. It would be, in one sense, much easier, much easier just to let the kids sometimes just do their own thing or not, not clamp down on things. In one sense, it's much easier. But as you know, if you don't do that, it gets a lot worse and a lot harder. A lot worse and a lot harder. But it would be easy sometimes just to let that stuff go. No, because we love our kids and want to see them walking in righteousness, and want to see them walking in the ways of the Lord, and want them seen to choose right and not wrong, like we correct the behavior. Well, it's similar with the church discipline. It's on just one-to-one. When you go to your brother or sister, when they're messing up, are you going because you hate them? No. You're going because you care about them. If they're getting tripped up in an area, you go and you talk to them, not because you're all high and mighty. I hope that's not the case. Now you're going because of a concern for them. You want them to be more like Jesus. You want them to be sanctified and sanctified and more sanctified. You want them to be true of what Colossians is saying about the holy ones. You want them to be one of them. And guess what? You should want that for yourself. You should want people able to come and talk to you. And all of us know, sadly, there's some people they were like, man, if I tried to have that conversation with that person, it's going to go so horrible and bad. I hope nobody says that about me. Seriously. <clears throat> Why? Because we want to be, I want to be approachable, and I want to be moldable, and if people see me tripping up somewhere, man, I hope they would come in love and talk to me about it. Right? Not, not getting some big um, giant blow up at me or something, but hey, just pull me aside and talk to me because they love me, and they want to see, they have what's best for me in mind. So we should be approachable as believers. But sometimes there's people we know and we're like, yeah, that combo wouldn't be good. Man, if that's you, you got to repent of that because that's, you're the one that's kind of acting high and mighty. You're the one that's not approachable. And God has given us 
brothers and sisters in Christ, in part, to help us become more like Christ. And part of that, more like Christ, is for them to come and talk to us, either challenge us, rebuke us, reprove us, encourage us, all of those things. And if you're going to go and talk to someone, you know, as one of my uh, disciples said, he's like, well, anyone can criticize me, but like, what are you going to do now that you've pointed out the flaw in me? Like, help me out, you know? So if you're going to go and, and talk to someone, like, be willing to take that journey with them to help them in that particular area. Dale Carnegie said, you know, any, anyone can criticize, condemn, or complain, right? The three C's, as he called them. Well, let, let's not be the criticize or condemn or complain. Let's come alongside them and help them out to walk in righteousness and wholeness. In the end, when you think about it, all three of these marks ultimately come back to the Word. It's really different, different forms of the Word, if you will. Think about it. The first form of the Word is the eternal Word, the second person of the Trinity. We saw it in John 1. That is the Word. But then we get, we get the incarnate Word, right? Jesus. And then we get the inscripturated Word, right? Put into the Scriptures, right? Written down for us, the Bible. What's the fourth form of the Word? It's the verbal Word. It's the preached Word. And then there's a fifth form of the Word. I'd call it the visible Word. What's the visible Word? It's the sacraments. They visibly display the gospel. How does baptism visibly display it? Well, it shows we're saved only by the washing away of sin. Our old man is buried. We arise in newness of life. I mean, it's a beautiful picture, uh, believer's baptism uh, through, by immersion, right? I mean, it pictures perfectly what's already happened inside here. The old is going under, buried, and then the new raised up. A perfect illustration of what happened with Christ, right? Buried, but he rises, right? What is the water there? I mean, it symbolizes the washing, right? Washed clean from our sins. What about the Lord's Supper? Well, again, it's the visible Word. It shows we live only through the body and blood of Christ offered as a sacrifice on the cross. Both of these sacraments are observable. You can see them with your own eyes. One of the things I like about the Lord's Supper, you actually get to taste right? It's the senses are involved. You can smell it too. <clears throat> Sometimes our bread smells a little different than normal bread, but uh, that, it is what it is, right? You can smell it too, but you're tasting. Even that tasting, it's a reminder of like, hey, there's, there's a feast one day that we're going to be, it's going to be more than just a little, little, you know, little crumb of bread, a little sip of juice. Like, it's going to be a feast, all right? So it's, it's a reminder, and these sacraments are observable. And when we talk about it, these different aspects or forms of the Word, it's really the Word at the center. And you really could even say the other two marks are just extensions of the Word. And none of these things are one-sided. None of these things. Here's the thing. You know, preaching is not one-sided. It's, it's responsive. Could... It would be really odd if no one was in this room and I was trying to actually preach. Right? Now, sometimes people practice in different things, but right, they're practicing, their pre- but they're actually not preaching because it's responsive. Right? The word is being preached and you're receiving it, and hopefully you're responding, sometimes with, with audible uh, cues, and sometimes, you know, just different things the Lord's doing in your heart, but the point is, it's not one-sided. But neither are the sacraments one-sided. Like, we're participants. We're dining with the Lord. It's His table that we're coming to. Same with baptisms. They're not one-sided. We're participants. We actually go under the water, and then we come back up. And here's the thing. When we're talking about these marks that are instituted by Jesus, we see them celebrated in the early church, and then we see them explained in the epistles, like those things 
are here for us today. We are part of the historic tradition of the Christian faith that we're blessed by God who pours out his grace upon us to step into that faith, to be a part of the historic tradition. When we're talking about the marks of the church, we need the preaching of the word, the true preaching of the word. What happens when the word gets off? The church gets off, right? What happens when the sacraments get off? The church gets off. What happens when the discipline gets off or is lacking? The church gets off, right? We want to be a people that are about God's word and a people that are a part of a church that display the marks of the church. That is what we are called to be. We want to be a church that has the true preaching. We want to be a church that has the sacraments rightly administered. We want to be a church that is willing to do the tough love of church discipline. And we are, by God's grace, and we will continue to be. So let us, as believers, as members of this church, as we covenant together, as we commune together, as we are united together, let us be a church that has these marks, displays these marks, and continues to walk by God's grace with those marks. Let's pray. Lord, continue to work in us and through us. Continue to make us to be the empty vessels that you fill, Lord, with your righteousness, with your goodness, with your gifts of the Spirit that we can display to others. Lord, let us be faithful to your word, to the different forms of it. We thank you for the preached word. We thank you, Lord, that you allow us to hear from you, spoken through men. We thank you, God, that we have visible sacraments that show the gospel that we get to partake in. And we thank you, Lord, that by your love and mercy, you correct us and you love us, even using our brothers and sisters in the church itself to bring about a discipline in our own lives. May we be a people fast about you, fast about what you call us to be about, to have your heart, and to seek you always. May we do this for your glory. Amen.